When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening, Rifflers. This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast where we go through many 5e books and talk about various rules and haunt your gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwake. And I'm Remy, a player of Riftwake and a Dungeon Master myself. And today we're here to talk to you about Crimes Against Humanity. Fuck Yay. you, Nathan, for adding this to the list. But, uh... All right, so this, since this one is kind of your topic, let's let you start us off. Uh, what are crimes against humanity? The things that we consider very good to do to other people, and everyone accepts with great joy and happiness. The opinions expressed by Nathan are not necessarily those reflect, <laughs> reflected by the Refake Podcast Network, and especially the other host involved therein. <sighs> God damn it, Nathan. Okay, so... Disregarding all of Nathan's opinions and speaking more factually, crimes against humanity are bad. They are things that most of the world does and should agree are bad. However, there are outliers, assholes like Nathan. So it is for that reason that it is worth having a discussion on crimes against humanity, war crimes, all those generally agreed upon bad things for use in a Dungeons and Dragons game. So more seriously, Nathan, can you list off any things that uh, might be appropriate in a D&D game? Uh, things appropriate for a D&D game. Let's see. Or do you want me to just uh, read the list of crimes against humanity? Yeah, that, that, that sounds like a very fun activity. So I'm not going to... Like, I, thankfully, I'm not an expert in war crimes and crimes against humanity, so I'm just mostly relying on Wikipedia just for these lists. So, crimes against humanity include war crimes, murder, massacres, dehumanization, genocide, ethnic cleansing, deportations, unethical human experimentation, extrajudicial punishments, including summary executions, use of weapons of mass destruction, state terrorism or state sponsoring of terrorism, death squads, kidnappings and forced disappearances, use of child soldiers, unjust imprisonment, enslavement, torture, rape, political repression, racial discrimination, religious persecution, and other human rights abuses. Whoa, that's, <sighs> a, that's a list. That is a list. There are more, but I think that that's sufficient for the sake of a single episode of a podcast. I have never heard political and rape in the same sentence. Uh, really? That, that happens like... a lot. Anyway, uh, let's not talk about that for the moment. <laughs> oh, jeez. All right. So, obviously, this shit is all bad. However, for the sake of discussion, we are going to be talking about a good number of these topics. So a little bit of trigger warning because there are some, a lot of really shitty things in here. And to reiterate, fuck you, Nathan, for making me do this. However, <laughs> I will say there are some things on that list that besides being bad can make for interesting storytelling. And obviously your mileage may vary. There may just be other topics on that list that you may want to explore that I just don't want to touch. So 
I'm going to just cherry pick through this list for things that I feel can actually add value to a game because they're bad. So one that jumps out at me is unethical human experimentation. The phrasing of that is rather interesting to me because it's not that human experimentation is automatically bad, but unethical. And if that's actually ethical. something that could be really interesting in a D&D game. Because on your culture. there is a lot of just weird magical shit out there in D&D. And sure, you know, we're used to the more organized spells of 5th edition. However, that doesn't mean that there can't be homebrew or just crazy magic users out there that are just trying to push the limits of magic. So it is entirely within a DM's purview to make the choice like, okay, yeah, maybe there is like either a faction or group or just an individual here and there that is just trying to push the boundaries of magic through human experimentation. And then the line, where is the line in your world between ethical and unethical? That's where I feel that this could be potentially interesting, because there are things that are weird, but that may not necessarily be truly bad, but toe that unethical line, which can create drama in a D&D game. So as one example, let's say that, you know, in a D&D world, blood magic was a thing that existed and that okay, yeah, this is something that might be used for, you know, really bad things and curses and all kinds of stuff like that. However, what if it were also possible that, let's say, willingly given blood is really good for protection magic and that it would be possible maybe for, like, if all the residents of some small village, you know, were to just, like, regularly bleed, like, on some magical stone, that there's a barrier around the town that keeps out you know, all manner of creatures, and then they would only have to deal with, you know, humanoid, you know, troublesome people. Like, that's actually a pretty interesting thought to me, because, yeah, D&D has a lot of fucking terrifying monsters, but, you know, we also have murder hobos out there in the world that are constantly troublesome. So let's say that, you know, Nathan, if you you as a a player, let's say for this example, came across this Mm -hmm. town like in a world where you're used to hearing about blood magic being done for horrible things and then find this use of blood magic that is regularly requiring the given blood of the people within this area. Like what would be your opinion when you stumble across such a thing? It's time to kill the person doing the blood magic, of course. So just the person who arranged it? What about if that person is, you know, centuries dead and it's just that the people have just kept it going? Then you kill everyone. And see, that's the kind of thing. If I were in that same party, I would try to stop you because they're not causing undue harm to other people. Or would it be the kind of thing where maybe the party decides to maybe we need to look into more of this blood magic thing? To find out, is it always bad? Are there dangerous side effects? Because I do, I do like I do like it when, um, especially when it comes to D and D, when we explore the cultural implications. Because like war crimes are very much like a lot of them are universally accepted as like that's bad. <laughs> but there's some stuff that can be like can be held subjective depending on your culture. Um, mm-hmm. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I assume that there is. So. <laughs> Um, I, I think that 
uh, it could be pretty fun to have multiple characters, especially especially in the case where war crimes are like a understood thing in your world that you like uh, let your players know about it, either through uh, most likely through like your in world uh, world building and whatnot. It could be really interesting to see people who have different opinions on it. And so, different opinions on what constitutes it. So that actually leads me to one angle of this that I am particularly interested in. As is known by now, I have no experience, but I do have a strong interest in just like law and politics and organization. So when you have something like crimes against humanity and war crimes, what is the kind of binding factor to those, you know, rules or understandings? Is there you know, actually something like, you know, the Nuremberg trials in your world to set like an international agreement. Like, is there some kind of treaty in your world that is like the main kingdoms, for example, might have like all agreed like, OK, like no self-perpetuating zombie plagues, because that's just a terrible idea. Like that <laughs> guy did it once a couple thousand years ago and it almost wiped out the world. So let's just all agree. No self-perpetuating undead. It just is a bad idea or, you know, other magical things that are just like weapons of mass destruction in the D&D world. Like anything that is like a contamination or just giant magical effect, like might be agreed. Yeah, let's not do that. I mean, it could be said that like higher levels of charm, like things that give you charm and whatnot, like can allow you to change the minds of others mm -hmm. might be considered something along those lines because you know people don't want people to change like affect their minds yeah i mean that mind control in general is just very much a touchy subject just that is one of just my personal existential fears i absolutely just despise the ideal the idea of any form of mental magic being used on me whether it is mind control memory erasure I fucking hate that. It just terrifies me. So yeah, it would absolutely make sense for such a thing to not be okay in a D&D world just by, you know, rules and policy. However, uh, before, let me uh, take a quick tangent and then we'll get back to that a little more. So one thing, again, that is worth the consideration, is there a treaty or is there just accepted norms? Because again, tradition is a very powerful factor, something that a lot of people don't think about when they're thinking about crimes against humanity and such. There have not been actual laws on the books regarding any of this for most of human history. So yeah, once we do get you know into the world wars and such in the last century, then finally we did make the decision, like when we got to the point where war could have mass casualties and other terrible things, like they finally did just write all this shit down. But in a D&D &D world, powerful, dangerous magic has existed. I mean, again, your world may vary, but generally speaking, at the very least, hundreds if not thousands of years have had powerful magic in existence. So is there a written down just set of agreements? Is there just tradition? And of course, the immediate follow-up question, okay, even if there is an agreement, who wrote such a thing? Who like still is in charge now in those areas? And are there people who didn't sign or who just break treaty? And what would be potential repercussions for that? So thinking about tradition versus actual treaty is very much worth it in terms of how you would respond from a dm perspective how players would respond if they find out that such a thing is a rule 
And also just, again, like you were saying earlier on, for the sake of world building, to let your players know, you know, hey, by the way, you know, these are like common knowledge things that, you know, you can just rattle off a list for your players of just like, hey, these are the things that are not okay. So there actually was a list published in 2002. So not nearly long enough ago, in all honesty. And this was a list just published by the International Criminal Court that is just like, hey, these are some things that we all agree is bad. So I'm not going to read the whole list because it's actually pretty long. But uh, just to pick a few, number one, willful killing or causing great suffering or serious injury to body or health. That one doesn't necessarily fit in a D&D world. However, the cause great injury or serious harm is actually pretty interesting to think about. So would there be rules that like if you are fighting someone, it is supposed to be to the death because it is considered inhumane to like chop off someone's arm or something and then just leave them there like in a world where it's actually easier to resurrect than regenerate. Like that's something that a lot of people don't think about. The regeneration spell is higher level than raise dead. So it is easier to come back from the dead than to grow back a missing limb. And that's fucking weird, but that is the way that the D&D magic works. So are there actual rules that like, yeah, fights should be to the death instead of to the pain? Like it, it's an interesting moral dilemma to think about. So let's see another one. Uh, OK, direct attacks against civilians. So this is another one that's kind of interesting to think about. So like in the event that the party does get into a scuffle in a town, are there like different sets of rules? Like if you're attacking a guard versus like harassing a shopkeep or harassing a noble, like what are the actual rules just to defend society in a town? I do have to say that it's it's something that I, I do find interesting now that we're talking about it. Is that in real life we have all these like if you think about it, we have all these restrictions on what we're allowed to do. Like you're not allowed to just murder someone in cold blood. Yet you can't mm-hmm. you can't kick someone in the shin um past a certain age and not get sued <laughs> for it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> when you're younger it's fine, but you know. <laughs> Debatable. But yeah, it's um <laughs> It's one of those things where you're like, okay, real life, we have all these different things, but in D&D, you kind of just can go about murdering and killing, and nobody really stops you unless it's, like, particularly egregious. Yeah, it's a weird thing to think about, but in D&D, like, it is a different culture in that world in that lives aren't considered particularly valuable. So, like we've talked about in, like, the past episodes about nobility and such, like, there are different values placed on different lives. And so just the reaction are going to be different depending on who kills who, where, when, why. And just all of those factors are important for a DM to at least have some idea about when they're doing their world building, or at the very least to have some idea when players do just randomly kill someone. Because I don't know that I've ever played in a D&D game that hasn't had at least one random murder. That's really <laughs> unfortunate, but it is a fact. I <sighs> killed the guy. It's like, wait, really? It's like, yeah. <laughs> All right. So one, uh, one other important one uh, off this list here, using poison weapons. Now, this one is actually pretty interesting to me from the D&D perspective, because an argument could be made that, 
you know, again, your mileage may vary, but a D&D world has had, again, centuries to millennia of magic, which would probably at least include some amount of alchemy. So there are a lot of existent poisons in D&D. So that creates the question then, would there be like some D&D version of like, don't use, you know, mustard gas and use mass amounts of poison versus like a single individual assassin? Because, I mean, it's still illegal to kill people with poison, but are there, like, again, wider range rules preventing mass uses of poison? So weapons of mass destruction in general are a kind of oddly underutilized topic in D&D, because I guess most people just don't want to think about such things exist existing in their escapist fantasy. But, again, you as a DM always have the choice what you may or may not want to incorporate in your worlds. So, Nathan, what would be your opinion of just any type of weapon of mass destruction in a D&D game? I think it's very cool, very fun, very family-friendly, such enjoyable. But the people in the world um, <laughs> might not. So... <laughs> I think right. um, it, it might be a case where, pe like, obviously not everyone's going to have it, and the way it seems to be is, generally speaking, you need a lot of people to make these kinds of weapons and whatnot, or create these kind of effects, and, I mean, perhaps you could uh, do some uh, thing about, for example, Blackthorn, he's a walking um, weapon of mass destruction, what, what are you going to do? Yeah, well, technically, the, yeah, the... Usual term I've heard for that is a PMD, person of mass destruction. Person of mass destruction. But, but yeah, like, what are you going to yeah. do against them? Like, sure, you can, like, in any normal city, like, you, you could be like, okay, don't do that. Because if you don't do that, we won't do that. And, and everyone will be happy. It's all, and, and with someone like Blackthorn, where it's, there's very few of them, and they are so powerful that, any country that wants to control them basically can't really oh, control them. Okay, so you're tangenting so well. away a little bit. So that's more talking, you know, epic magic, high-level right. characters, and that type of stuff. But if you really think about it, like, modern weapons of mass destruction can easily eliminate a city, if not an actual, like, area of a... Like, an even larger area of effect, potentially. But Blackthorn, for all of his power... Like, yeah, D&D a... magic isn't generally built for mass destruction, thankfully. Right. Like, even ninth level spell, you know, talking about dropping a meteor on someone, it's still not try. an enormous area of effect, weirdly enough. Like, they're right. still I... relatively small. And, and uh, if we look at, like, the, the world of Riftwake, the one event where, like, the one thing that he did that would be considered a weapon of mass destruction required a lot of very high-level mages to die. Yeah. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So just for funsies, just because I know you don't know. Sure. What do you think is the largest area of effect attack spell? Uh, one mile. So that's the range. That's not the area of effect. Uh, one mile radius. Nope. So Entire plane. <laughs> no, no. Not in fifth edition, at least. So not again, anymore. I mean, there's circle of death and freezing sphere that have a 60 foot radius sphere but even up to ninth level when you do talk about meteor swarm that does have the mile range but that's area of effect is just four points of 40 foot radius so there's nothing that is more than like a couple of blocks of effect even the ninth level spell meteor swarm four points of a 40 foot radius impact that's not a whole lot in terms of sheer size if you do consider you know large weaponry however obviously if you go back to earlier editions then there does exist epic magic that just gets absolutely ridiculous so we are not going to be talking too much about that because that's not fifth edition stuff if they do introduce epic magic i would be very happy and we'll talk about it then but anyway yeah so 60 foot radius is the largest single area of effect in 5th edition. That's nothing. So if you do consider adding anything larger than that, it theoretically wouldn't be that difficult because like Alchemist Fire does exist. There like there is known to be magic that does uh just have the ability to store like the Ring of Spell Storing, Spell Gems, like there's quite a few things like that, but you could of course homebrew something. So one example that actually comes to mind when we talked about anti-magic back in the day, uh, there is one adventure, I don't remember which one off the top of my head, but there is like a six foot tall crystal that radiates a constant 200 foot area of anti-magic. So we do have canonical examples of creating a spell-like effect with a larger object in a larger area of effect. So you could absolutely use that to make something similar. So maybe you just, honestly, you could just stick with those numbers. Okay, you have a six foot tall crystal that like, let's just say you figure out some, you know, large flying creature to drop it from very high, it shatters, and then it just triggers like a 200 foot radius explosion or lightning storm or, you know, insert elemental effect here. Like that's the kind of thing that would be horrifying in a D&D world, like even at quote unquote only 200 feet because it is so much larger than non-standard but like you can just scale that up as much as you want um i don't remember have you ever heard of something called a mythal m-y-t-h-a-l no i don't think okay so this is something that is really like not super well known but it is something that is briefly mentioned in fifth edition but not actually uh described in a whole lot of detail so there is mention of it in uh mordenkainen uh tome of foes 
but it's basically great works of magic that have just enormous areas of effect with some enormous thing at the center of it that is uh, something like 50 feet to 150 feet like core of, you know, whatever insert material here. So there are larger magical effects possible and listed in 5th edition. There are actually uh, rules for it back in 3.5, but again, uh, that's from older books and epic magic, which 5th edition doesn't have yet. So we don't have much about that yet, unfortunately. But anyway, so the point being, though, that it is technically something mentioned in 5th edition, so technically you could look at those 3.5 rules for just like these massive areas of effect. Now, what's also pretty interesting about them, though, when you do get into higher level magic, it can work however the fuck you want it to work in all practicality. Yes, you can follow the numbers from before, but you can do whatever the fuck you want because it's your world. That's the fun of D&D. However, again, you could use that as a base, though, to figure out, OK, so let's say I do create this enormous like let's just say there's a city a mile away from an abandoned mine in a mountain somewhere and then enemies can like take over the mountain in secret and try to construct this great device that when triggered will just either you know go with the anti-magic idea and just like turn off all magic in a two mile radius which would you know leave the enemies sitting ducks for, you know, our prepared forces attack, you know, because we know to be ready for the anti-magic and we will kill them all. You know, or the other direction of, OK, again, if you are creating a device with, you know, a multi-mile radius, like how terrifying would it be if like even if you had a low but steady amount of damage? Because like there are magic items that can just launch a spell ad infinitum just like once per turn. You know, it just is action limited and not charges like you know, even something as simple as, uh, you know, headband of, you know, a helmet of telepathy. It just lets you cast detect thoughts at will. You just got to, you know, keep doing it. So there is canonically the ability to just make reuse magic. So even if you limited a first level spell, there are plenty of just dangerous things, even at that relatively low level. Like you could easily just have like, <laughs> imagine if you somehow programmed the machine to just let off a hellish rebuke anytime anyone anywhere in that like in a two mile effect attacked someone. They just got blasted with a hellish rebuke fire damage. That would be that, that's terrifying <laughs> and kind of awesome. No, no, I, I just want to make this worse and just be like oh, one dear. day, little Timmy, it's John. Boom, <laughs> the kid's dead. Oh. <laughs> God damn, why do you always have to take it back to child murder? Stop it. But God damn, that just distracted me. But yeah, seriously, though, like they're like just using first level spells alone. I mean, something like Earth Tremor, it just kind of shakes the ground very gently. But OK, if you fail the save, it's just a simple 1d6 bludgeoning damage, which to an adventurer doesn't sound like much. However, again, keep in mind the sheer size of this area and how squishy civilians are. So if you have a city that is every single person has to make this saving throw or take 1d6 bludgeoning damage, that will kill 99% of most places in a minute. Like, unless you have a weirdly dexterous city, like maybe a city of elves has an ever so slightly better chance. 
But even if you have, like, if you make the machine as easy, like, as cheap as possible, like, let's just say, for example, that it, like, had to be made out of delicate parts and only barely works. So, okay, so it is an easy, you know, DC 10 save. So it wasn't even, like, the high DC of the person who made it. And okay, so it's got the range. It is just a single D6 of bludgeoning damage, potentially. You still need to get to the damn thing to break it. So if you have, you know, adventurers that are just finding out about this to investigate it, how long does it take adventurers to travel a mile? More than one minute. Like, unless you have a high enough party to just know somehow to teleport directly where you need to go, the time. For adventures to go one minute, such a device, as theoretically simple as that would be, would destroy flat out most cities. I just thought of another war crime, possibly. Yes. Uh, And that is to teleport your army straight into the city of the enemy. Um, You know, kind of seems rude. See, that's one that I actually would debate, because it's interesting to think about that idea of Okay, what is the line between sound military strategy versus war crime? Because like, like that, there is a line somewhere where where it's kind of like, uh, what's that word? It it's kind of in bad, uh, it's kind of bad taste. Yeah, where where like I I don't know what the rule exactly, but there's some rule against you shooting people parachuting down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think of it like at the, as the same thing where you. you attacking someone um with something that cannot be by any means be detected before you appear when they're all you know just like relaxing and shit is a bit yeah but then that creates the counter thought though yeah that is fucked up however it's a really good strategy if you had access to enough teleportation so that's the kind of thing that might well be like a debated topic like what are your thoughts that's Like, I honestly, I think that that would be the kind of fun thing to play out, like, in a session. Like, like this is the kind of thing that, like, a mid to high level session, like, let's say it becomes a diplomatic encounter where the party has, like, helped settle an issue for one side of this debate before. So they're brought in as, like, a semi-neutral party, like, to help mediate a discussion on that very fact between two kingdoms who are either at war or just, like in the kind of build-up phase to war, and, like, maybe they are, like, a civilized pair of kingdoms that are just, like, hashing out the rules for the coming conflict, like, because that just may be just the way that they want to do things. So then you can have the party themselves be the ones to, you know, take sides even, and just to have the discussion of... I, I, I love that, that idea. Yeah. Because because when the war crime just happened and they're there watching people die around them, you can blame them for it. And it really does just kind of create some potentially interesting drama to just kind of do it that way. like Or the kind of thing, like, again, if you are just the overprepared type like myself, like, you might have thought of the repercussions of mass teleportation. So, again, like, earlier I talked about the idea of blood magic, and that's just because that's something that I personally think is actually pretty neat. And that the idea of willingly given blood being usable for protection, I just think that that's kind of cool. So that is something that just I myself have developed. However, what's fun to think about, so I expanded that with the idea of mythos, and again, I I like all of that stuff a lot. So, so my cities actually, so any like sufficiently sized city has like a barrier around it, basically, that will funnel teleportation attempts 
into a very specific place. So it creates a bottleneck if an enemy were to attempt mass teleportation, then there's just a potential kill zone where they're not where they want to be, but that they get sent somewhere else. So having that kind of teleportation redirection or to have just the idea of, no, maybe they just, it's just like, you know, bugs on a windshield and they just, you know, appear on this barrier and then they just like slide down the edge, you know, like something off a windshield. Like, boy, I hope that, they have something to prevent fall damage as they are just going to slide down a couple hundred feet onto the hard ground or potentially spiky ground, depending on the opinions and, you know, war status of the place. Like, imagine if you did just have like a bubble around the city and then the bottom just has a bunch of spiked pits that they have to survive the fall damage, survive the spikes. And, you know, who knows, maybe you can even throw some poison on for good measure. Like, that would be a very good defense and a very good reason to prevent mass teleportation. <laughs> like, ah, that's a very good reason to not do that. Uh, actually, I do want to just pull one more thing on the list, because this has very interesting implications to me. So, again, another uh, Geneva Convention one. Firing upon a combat medic with clear insignia. You don't hurt the medics because they are obligated to just help save lives. In D&D, that is an interesting idea. Are there neutral healers? So it is one thing to just consider like the healer in a party of adventurers, because that is someone who is part of, you know, that faction, uh, you know, the adventuring party. But are there neutral medics in the world? For some reason, this is something that I've never actually seen done in a D&D game. Like, as you know, popular and important as the Red Cross is in real life, there's not anything like it in D&D that I have seen before, which is kind of unusual. Yeah, that, that's kind of crazy, because, like, when you think about it, those guys are fucking brave-ass shits that go out there and save people's lives yeah, And they're just massively important, because, because like, like to, to have yeah. just non, non-partisan, Combat. just neutral... Yeah healers out there that you can't attack so all the injured are, are safe pretty much and especially if you consider just with the rules of D, the fact that if there were any kind of mass battle because of the way the rules work like if you just fail three death saving throws you bleed out in that you know theoretical 18 seconds that would mean that most people on a battlefield have terrifying odds of just bleeding out no matter how powerful they are just because of just lack of healers and that's kind of fucked so if there were a DD mass combat kind of situation you would hope that there would be some massive number of neutral healers at the very least to just help stabilize those who are taken out so it'd be one thing for like let's say you know generals and higher ranking combatants adventurers also to have like a dedicated healer because again that's just smart adventuring but like the masses for some reason are always just depicted as just you know a bunch of people with spears and shields if that just getting thrown at each other even in like a DD world of high magic but the idea of there not being neutral healers is just weird because again logically there should be so again that alone is something that I highly suggest DMs just think about and just kind of implementing in their world. Make a D&D Red Cross, because there should be. And then again, just having the rule of like, no, 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 those guys get left alone. You do not target them. But then 
the thing that always creates, you know, the kind of gray area and the interesting thing to think about. Let's say that there is a Red Cross guy who is in the midst of a field of enemies and is just trying to stabilize some of the people who are knocked out and bleeding out. Do you launch a fireball at that area to take out the other combatants or do you not attack that because of the presence of that guy? And then on the counter counter side of that, do you purposefully line up attackers around the Red Cross guy to prevent area of effects getting launched against you? If I'm not wrong, there's, there's like rules, like actual rules about that. Yeah, like that's the thing. There. Like there are real <laughs> rules of engagement in combat regarding combat medics and such. So again, that's a really just interesting field to think about of what do you make as like the policy in your D&D game? Do you just like follow the kind of real Red Cross rules, which again would give you actual written documentation of like, here's the rules that we came up with and just kind of adapt that for D&D? Or do you come up with, you know, whatever rules just for yourself? And actually just to, to pull off one more just kind of interesting one from this list that's on a similar path, misusing a flag of truce. That is interesting to me. That's rude. <laughs> because there is like the classic, you know, wave a white flag to surrender. And there have been historical times where people will fly the white flag to lure someone into a trap, like a false surrender. The problem being that doing so makes the flag itself meaningless. It means that people have the inability to surrender, which makes all fights where such a thing cannot be trusted into an unnecessary fight to the death without ability to surrender. So having a flag of truce be trusted is actually really fucking important. And again, just creates a kind of interesting tactical scenario because that's exactly the kind of thing that I would put a party through myself to just like let them know like, hey, you know, there, you know, you do have, you know, something that you could use to fly as a flag to potentially lure into a trap. But you know, you are well aware that this is not okay. And if any allied forces or enemy survive, that you would get in massive trouble if you did this, what will you decide to do? Like, like so this is exactly the kind of scenario I mentioned earlier of, yes, a lot of these things are terrible and a lot of these things should not be used. However, in a Dungeons & Dragons game, one of the joys is to create drama and consideration of the potential war crimes and crimes against humanity that may exist in your world can be a very effective source of drama and actually be an enjoyable fact because of that in your D&D game. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.